seated. By God's grace, we'll try to hook up with Mark, as I said, next week. As we come to John chapter 4, we've been dealing with this passage. I've entitled this message, as you see in your bulletin, A True Believer Must Understand Some Things. There are some things that he must understand taken from this passage. In our context, let us remember in chapter 4 that Jesus is journeying to Galilee. That's where he's going. And he's had to make a stop in Samaria. And that is in the first 42 verses, so we're still in that particular passage. While he's in his journey and comes to Samaria, he's involved in a conversation with a woman. And they were now at Jacob's well, and Jesus was talking with her. And he had spoken to her last week, as we saw, about living water, eternal life. And as we saw, the indwelling Holy Spirit, as he's referring to her uh, and speaking to her while he was thirsty as a man. And yet we do begin to see there's some progress in this woman's thinking. Why? I'd like you to notice in verse 9, when she first talks to him, she just simply says that he was a Jew. He says, how, she says, how is it that you, being a Jew, asks of me? So she's able to recognize that he's a Jew. Then as he begins to talk to her, as we ended last week in verse 11, you'll notice she says to him, Sir. And then when she comes to verse 15 again, and the woman said to him, our opening verse today, Sir, give me this water. So she is making some progress, and that's important. She's making progress as the Lord talks with her, and she desires what he has. We know that from verse 15 because she says, Sir, give me this water. So she does have a desire to get what he's offering. However, very important for us as we talk about witnessing. And please listen. God gives us opportunities to witness. And you know I've said it and I'm going to repeat it again today. We are in a society, in a world, in Christian thinking in which everything is a quick salvation. We feel we have failed if we don't get a person to bow and pray with us. And if there's certainly a meeting that's called an evangelistic meeting, if there isn't an altar call and professions of faith, we feel as if there's a failure because we had to close the deal. That's not what Christ does here in this passage. And this is very important. While she's asking for what Christ has offered to her, he knows that she is still thinking physically only. Her thinking is entirely physical. And if he leaves her there, she is really in trouble. Because she's going to have the impression that she knows God, and she won't. She is looking, verse 15, for life to be made easy for her. That's it. In verse 15, she says, so I will not be thirsty. And then she says, and come all the way here to draw. She's only thinking physical. He's spoken to her about spiritual things, but her thinking is, look, give me this water so I don't have to work so hard anymore. Give me this water so that my physical satisfactions are met. And Jesus knows this. So he does not say to her, well, just ask Christ into your heart and you're all set. He doesn't say that. 
She didn't get it, and she's in danger. Listen to me. She is now in danger, in my opinion, of being in a worse condition now than she was before she started talking with Jesus. Why? Because if she goes away thinking she's saved, when she's only looking for physical satisfaction, she is like many professing Christians today, making a profession and there is no reality. I am so tired as a pastor of hearing and reading about statistics of how many people got saved and they're nowhere to be found in churches. Nowhere to be found in their Christian walk. There's a Christian, quote unquote, or religious encounter, but there's no reality behind it. To make it very practical, it's like adding Jesus to their life. It's that they bowed and said a prayer with somebody. Did they have an experience? Absolutely. But then they go back to their old life, expecting their life simply to be easier. That's all she was looking for at this stage. For my life to be easier, and that's why, again, you hear that, you know, who would not want to hear, would you like to go to heaven? Sure. I don't want to spend eternity in hell. And they go away with an easier life. It's a picture of much professing Christianity today. Jesus perceived her thinking. He knew what she was thinking, and he was patient. He wasn't pushing for a decision. He's not looking for something quick that he can add up another one on his list or impress people with statistics. He was absolutely committed to God's way, and if you get nothing else out of the message, grab this. God's way of bringing salvation is that the Holy Spirit does the work, not you, not me. All we do is bring forth the word. The Spirit of God has to open up the hearts. And if we could get that through, we would never push for quick salvation. We would realize, should we evangelize? Absolutely. And he knew that. So he leads her to understand the essentials that every true believer must understand. Now, there are different levels of what they understand, absolutely. But the first one is sin. There are so many that talk about salvation today and don't address sin. We find him addressing that in verses 16 through 19. Let me read it again. He said to her, go call your husband and come here. The woman answered and said, I have no husband. Jesus said to her, you've well said you have no husband, for you've had five husbands. And the one that you now have or are living with, he's not your husband. This you have said truly. The woman said unto her, watch her progression. Sir, I perceive you are prophets. And so we find out in verses 16 through 19, if you will, that salvation, listen, you've heard it before in this book involves a new birth. It involves a transformation. It involves something from the inside out. It involves repentance. It involves a change. It involves a new creation. I'm trying to give it to you in different terms so you catch it. It doesn't merely involve words. It involves a complete change. Sin absolutely must be confronted. 
She wanted a better life without changing her life. She wanted it made easy for her, but she wasn't willing to talk about her sin. And so Jesus, knowing this, goes right to the source of the problem. Before a person can ever get saved, as we term it, they must understand that they're lost. If somebody doesn't know they're drowning, they will never want to be rescued. It is very basic. Have you ever heard this? I have. I've heard it since I've been pastoring this church. I've had people say to me to this as I talk to them about, do you know Christ? I have known God all my life. Have you ever heard that said? Let me tell you something. Someone says that to you, they're not saved. And there could be people in this audience that feel, well, I've known God since I was yay big, since I can ever remember. Doesn't mean you were saved. I have been saved all my life. Really? Show me scripturally where anybody. Paul had to get saved at a point in time. God had to call Moses out. Adam was a failure until he came. We have to go right through scripture. Who do you want to pick out? These are all men, even those that God called from the womb. They still had to be confronted by God. You know, one of the problems man has is he compares himself to what everybody else is doing. You see, I've known God all my life. I don't shoot anybody. I don't go in and I, I, I haven't committed adultery, so I'm pretty good. I've been brought up morally. I'm not so bad. Remember the response of reading? How many were righteous? None. There is not a person. I don't care how your sweet little girl or your sweet little boy behaves. They're a sinner. I don't care how sweet you are as a husband or a wife or your boss or anyone. Inside, sinner. And the wages of sin is death, physical and spiritual. And Jesus exposes her. How? Maybe she was an adulterer. I think so by the context. But it doesn't clearly say that. But I tell you this much. Certainly, she's a fornicator. You say, you're getting pretty rough, Pastor Dan. That's what the text tells you. What do you mean? She's an immoral person. Why? She's living with someone she's not married to. Uh-oh. Pastor Dan, you're going to jail. Maybe. I don't know. But I tell you something. That is going on in professing Christendom today. People are living with one another like it means nothing. I want to test the waters to see if I really want to marry this guy. That's called sin. She was living with a guy she wasn't even married to. She's an immoral person. What had specifically happened to her? I don't know. Maybe they died. Let's give the benefit of the doubt. It's possible. But probably because of the context and what she says even in the next message to come, when she says, this guy exposed all my life. I think she was an immoral person. Probably divorced many times. Put that in its context, because here, historically, we don't catch that. Why? Because today, you can get a divorce for anything. You want a divorce, call up, and you get it in five minutes. Women could not get divorce under Jewish law. 
Men could divorce women for anything they wanted, basically. I'm a little exaggerated there. But the woman couldn't get it. Although they did get around it from the reading I was able to do, and the way they would get around it was called money. They would basically give them enough money to the man and ask him to divorce her so she could get away from him. And that would happen. I don't know what the circumstances were. It's not clear. But certainly she had five people that she's lived with, and even if they did die, she's had a lot of relationships, and she's living together. And let me say something else about that to get myself in trouble. Where it says that they were living together, living does not constitute a marriage. What? Look at it. The one whom you now have is not your husband. Scriptures couldn't be clearer. We say that if people are living together, then they're married. Really? Not so. All they're doing is having sex. You say, you're really getting blunt. That's correct. Because we need to see the sin that's going on on our side. We have gradually grown to accept that, even in Christian circles. It's not acceptable. You say, what if it hits your family? It's not acceptable. And you take a stand against it. You say, I don't know, I can't do this. My, my, my son or my daughter. Pastor Chris had it right. Are you going to honor God more than your children? Or are they more important to you than God? He exposes her sin. And to live together and to live together for sex is sin. I don't care what society says today or how acceptable it is or whatever. And I want you to notice something else. God sees it all. What? Yeah. He, she didn't tell him what was going on. And by the way, you want a text that deals with the deity of Christ? Right here. You say, well, I don't see that. Look at what she says, and later on, you know what she's going to do? She's going to run to men and say, this guy, is he the Christ? He told me everything that went on in my life. How did he find out that stuff? You know how we found out? Because God knows everything that's going on in your life. You might hide it from people, but you never hide it from God. And that's what needs to be exposed. That's why somebody who's going to come to Christ first needs to realize how sinful they are. And you can hide it from everybody else. And if you don't think that's going on, how would you like to be involved in the case that's happening in your news today? And be ready to marry a guy in August and then find out he behind the scenes is not only involved in stealing, but murder potentially, if he's proven guilty. People don't know what's going on in other people's lives because they have secret lives. You can have all the secret life you want, but God knows everything that's going on. And we've seen in this text alone that Jesus Christ was weary, he was tired, he was thirsty, fully human. He also knew everything that was going on in her life without anybody telling him because he sees all, fully God. You cannot hide from God. What does exposure bring? What does sin bring? Embarrassment, shame, conviction, and truth. And that's what the Holy Spirit does as he brings conviction. I want you to know something. No, this isn't the end. You say, Pastor Dan, that's pretty strong. This woman's in trouble because he's exposed her immoral life. Absolutely. So she realizes that she's got to get away from just wanting the physical, and she's got to change from the inside and out. And the good news, and by the way, it doesn't matter what the sin is. Let me address that right now. 
It doesn't matter if in this room you are a murderer and nobody knows it. It doesn't matter whether or not you're an adulterer. It doesn't matter whether you've been involved in abortion. It doesn't matter in this sense <coughs> because that's the sin, but there's good news. Jesus Christ died and he paid the penalty to satisfy the righteousness of God. It doesn't end just at exposing the sin. And I want you to know that progress is being made, and that's why we know that he saw through to her, because now in verse 19, she's moved from a Jew to a sir, and now she says in verse 19, Sir, I perceive that you're a prophet. Why? No one could have exposed her life not having known it unless he was from God. But still, she's a little uncomfortable, so she wants to divert to religion, and that's what people do today even as we're witnessing to them. And I'm telling you this because be careful when you're witnessing. We want to give the gospel, but he was able to perceive that, first of all, she's only thinking physical. I've got to get beyond that, expose her sin. And even now with her sin exposed, she's going to try to divert the conversation and get away from even seeing what she needs to see. But Jesus is going to help her to understand. You know why? He's going to bring her to the second level, and that is that men need to understand the nature of God. A lot of people have all types of concepts about God, but while she has a diversion, he's going to bring her back to a proper understanding of who the one true God really is. Verses 20 to 24. In this passage, we read this. Our fathers worshipped in this mountain. You people say that in Jerusalem is a place we ought to worship. What happened is she's embarrassed because her sin's exposed. That's a good thing. But she turns to religion. She turns literally to the hot topic of her day. What's the hot topic of today? It could be any number of things. The type of church a person goes to and so forth. Hold on to that for a minute or two. Well, this religion says this. You might be talking to somebody and they say, well, you say that Jesus is the only way. But this religion says this, and that religion says that. And who really knows what's right? We're all going up a different side of the mountain. We're going to get there anyway, aren't we? And they divert to different topics as you're witnessing to them. She tries to get the attention off herself and her own sin and bring it to the issue of the day. What was the issue? Listen carefully. Where is the right place to worship? That's what she was saying. Where is the right place to worship? You tell me. Just to put it in context for you for a moment to properly treat the text, the Samaritans only believed that the Pentateuch was the word of God, the first five books. And because of that, the people thought that they should worship as she says, in this mountain, that was Garrison. And in Garrison, on that mountain, some significant things took place. For example, that's where when they get into the land, they praised God. And so that was a very significant area. It was also where they believed, and there's no scriptural evidence for it, but where they believed that Abraham met Melchizedek. Some would go so far to say that's where he even sacrificed his son. And so that's where the Samaritans thought that they should worship God, and they did set up an altar there. Now, the Jews, they believed in all of the Old Testament. They were familiar with Chronicles. They were familiar, for example, with Psalms. And they knew that God pointed out Jerusalem should be the place to worship. So just like there are theological debates today, and there are everywhere, everywhere, this was the hot topic. So back then, it's where we should worship. You think it's in Jerusalem. We think it's in Garrison. We're right. Nah, nah, you're wrong. Uh-uh. You know, that type of thing, and that happens all the time today in theological circles. Diversion from what God really wants us to do. 
application to today, there are so many concerns about where the right place is or the right way to worship God. That is going on in Christian circles. Where is the right place to worship God? Is it the temple? Well, we'd say no. How about a cathedral? How about a church? How about a chapel? How about a house? How about a hall? We get all these debates. It's got to be in a building. It's got to be in a home. It's got to be here. It's got to be there. And we get off on that topic. How about this one? The way we worship. Those are our hot topics today. Should it be formal or casual? Should it be liturgical or evangelical? Should it be traditional or should it be contemporary? Should it be this music style or should it be that music style? Should it be to dress like Pastor Dan dresses or should it be just to dress any way I want? Those are the things that are killing Christianity today. They are. And they're killing even people coming to Christ. You know why? Because Christians are fighting about where to worship, how to worship, etc., etc. Listen carefully to me the next few moments. The focus of this woman and our focus and your children's focus need to get in the right place. And we've got it all wrong. We've got it. I included myself. It isn't where we worship, because some people feel if it's a new place, if I can get out of that church building and get into a house, I'm all set. Not really, because it doesn't matter where it is. Or this is the current movement with young people. If I can just get a new form of worship, you know, I have to have a new form or a new style of worship. And that is where people are flocking today. If we just change the style of the music, the style of the dress, the style and the form of worship, and we call, by the way, there are called worship teams, and that's only a section of the Sunday morning. The worship team comes on now, and later on, someone else to preach whatever. But the worship team is going to lead us. And they think by changing the style, that's going to make me feel good. Listen, all of that is wrong. And that was what the problem was with her. She wanted to go to a certain place, get the attention off her sin. And if I change the circumstances, I'll be OK. No, this is what I want you to get. What we need is a new focus, not a new style not a new place. And our focus needs to be on the person of God. Who it is we're worshiping. And who it is we're supposed to be worshiping. And in the context, Jesus brings about change. That's verses 21 and 23. When he says, my hour, that's the word aura, or hora, if you will. And it's referring to, when it's used that way, his death, burial, and resurrection. And I know some won't like the term, but he's telling them that he brings in a new dispensation here. He says a change is going to take place. He says, believe me, the hour is coming when you won't matter whether it's in this mountain or another mountain. And you worship what you don't know. By the way, that's pretty strong. 
What he's saying, that's true of many religions. They are worshiping in mountains, they're carrying out services, and they have no concept of who they're supposed to be worshiping, and basically they're worshiping no one. Jesus commends the Jews in verse 22 when he says, we worship what we know for salvation is from the Jews. You know what he's basically saying there? The summation of it? The Jews did have all of the Old Testament. They were right. The Messiah was coming through them. He had to be a Jew. And they, while they were fighting about the mountains as well, and they were missing it, they were the chosen people of God. <clears throat> Revelation of God did come <clears throat> to them. And it was through them that the Messiah would come. There is not many ways to worship God. It is his way. It is only through Christ. And true worship he defines in verse 23. And why I say that, sometimes in spite of one another, we say it's going to be traditional. Or in spite of one another, we say it's got to be contemporary. Or in spite of one another, it's got to be casual. Or in spite of one another, it's got to be formal. And we wouldn't admit it, but that's where the fight really is. You know what that's called? In my opinion, worship wars. And Christians are involved in worship wars rather than true worship. True worship, he, he says to us very clearly, is this. It is in spirit, verse 23 and 24, and truth. There is only one preposition, by the way. What does that mean? Inseparable. You can't worship God in spirit if you don't have truth. You can't worship God in truth if you don't have spirit. And we try to do both. I just read an article. I showed it to my wife last night. I was sitting reading a very recent article. And I read it to her and so forth. And it absolutely destroyed it. And it said basically professing Christendom wants the truth out they want less of the message, and they quoted one situation where they said, don't tell us, and I quote, what Job said about God. Tell us what Job said that's relevant to my life. That's today's message. They don't care about truth. What's relevant for me? It doesn't matter whether it's relevant or not. What we're here to study is truth. But that's also going to line up. You can have all the truth in the world, and all that will do is puff you up if you don't have the right spirit. And if you have the spirit of wanting to honor God, but you throw truth out, it's no good. They're inseparable. To worship God, you must worship him in spirit and truth. This isn't talking about the Holy Spirit. It's talking about my spirit. It's the inner person. You see, you can have all the formality. You can come to church on Sunday, and you can be involved in all the formality in the world or all of the informality in the world, and your life and heart is not in it, and it's useless. Or you can throw the spirit out and just have all the truth, and it's useless. In order to worship God, it is based upon two things. One, the inner man that is committed to worshiping the true God, and also that I do it according to knowledge, intellectual knowledge of what the truth is, it is not a blind faith. It is based upon the revealed word of God. There are too many experiences. There are too many emotions. There are too many feelings that it's a feel-good thing. That is not the way you worship God. Feelings are there, absolutely. But it isn't just about an experience. 
It's about worshiping the one true God with all of my inner being and with all of the proper knowledge based upon what he has revealed. And the two of them have to work or else I'm not worshiping the true God. You say, how do you know that? First of all, what is worship? Worship means to ascribe supreme worthiness to someone. And in this case, it's God. And hold on to your hats. I'm not done. I lost some minutes with Skype this morning. Listen, worship is not what you just do on a Sunday. All too often, Christians, professing Christians, all they think about for worship is what happens on Sunday. You have missed the boat, if that's what you look at. Worship is a life. Worship happens 24-7. True worship of the true God happens all the time. This is just where we come collectively to do it together. Al Spias preached Wednesday night, absolutely hit the nail on the head. Prayer is worship. Praise is worship. It isn't just Sunday morning in any church. Let me be specific. Worship, true worship of the true God happens at home. How's your home life? I'm going to get sticky. True worship happens in the bedroom. How's that before God? True worship happens in the office where I work and the way I do my job. True worship happens when you're watching TV as to whether or not you're doing it in a way that honors God by what you're watching and what you're doing with what you're watching. True worship happens in the yard. True worship happens when you're driving your car. Boy, is that convicting. Was that for me? <laughs> True worship. <laughs> Those of you that know how I drive. My, my family would say amen to that. True worship happens when you're playing games. And everybody said amen to Pastor Dan again. I know. I fail in these areas. That's not uh, that I want to be proud about that at all. But we need to see that's true worship. True worship happens when you're on vacation. Oh, enjoy the relaxing, but what are you doing? Throwing out all the Christian principles because you're on vacation? You see, true worship is in spirit and truth all the time. Why? Here's why. It tells you right there in verse 24. God is spirits. That's why. And it isn't God is a spirit. Let me just cover that for a second. Many say, well, the God's one spirit of many. That's not what the text says. It simply says God is spirit. It is dealing with the nature of God. That's what this woman was missing. She was concerned about, was I, should I worship in this mountain? Should I worship in that mountain? God says, you've got it mixed up. God is spirit. You have to worship him with your spirit and with truth. That's why the Jews had it right in that portion. They had the right truth. The Samaritans did not. 
But the Jews couldn't boast anyway because God put them down as well because all they were doing was with their lips and their life was far from him. The whole point is God is not material. And we worship God and people that we address on the street with the gospel of Jesus Christ, their thinking of God is that he's some type of material being that's like a genie in a lamp. I rub the lamp, he responds to me, gives me what I want, makes my life easy, and that's the way. And if you're witnessing to somebody and you make them say a prayer and that's their concept, you have made them worse a child of hell. And the reason is because they are worshiping the wrong God. They have no concept of their sin. They have no concept of a holy, righteous God that their life had to be changed. And they're going out thinking their life's going to be made easier because they said some prayer. Many are attaching Jesus to their life today. Many are simply going to church because it's making them feel good and they're looking for a certain type of service. Many have changed the style of worship and they think that that brings them closer to God and makes them feel good. Many are just concerned about whether it's contemporary or not contemporary. And my point to you is we are missing the point. And the result, in my opinion, is this. That we have many professing Christians, and this is not an, ex- uh, an all-inclusive list. We have many a professing Christian who say they belong to Jesus Christ, who are cheating their bosses, their neighbors, their spouses. We have many professing Christians who are lying through their teeth and making themselves look good. We have many professing Christians who are coveting the possessions of this world and can't get enough of it. We have many professing Christians who are backbiting and spending their whole time talking about other Christians, and the world is looking at it, and they want nothing to do with Christianity because of that supposed testimony. We have many professing Christians who are absolutely fighting and involved in strife, and their whole life is built around a life of complaining. We have many professing Christians whose lives are filled with envy. We have many professing Christians who are involved in immorality. We have many, and I'm talking professing Christians, and that's what I keep repeating, who say they belong to Christ and they're lusting after everything. We have many professing Christians who are telling dirty jokes. And I could go on and on. Pick up Galatians and look at it on your own. You know why? There's never been a true transformation. They were never changed from the inside out. They just added Jesus to their life, and they thought they could go on and worship the true living God, who's a God who is spirit, and I can live my lifestyle any way I want, and I still have eternal life because I said a certain prayer. It's a mockery of Christianity. It's hypocrisy to the ultimate And I want to tell you something. The unsaved world sees right through you. There are some of you that what happens is when you're with family, 
they see the way you talk about other Christians. And they haven't come to Christ, and you're wondering why, because you've been praying for years. It's because they're watching your life. And your life is totally convicting to them. It's what they don't want. Because they see the hypocrisy coming out of you. Pretty strong. But that's her problem. And Jesus knew it. He didn't want just a quick conversion. She needed to understand her sin. She also needed to understand who God is so that she was worshiping the right God, the true way, and had a true change. In Mark chapter 7, I won't turn there, but you can mark it down, Mark 7, 6 and 7, the Lord Jesus Christ himself said this, speaking of Israel, he said, truly Isaiah said, This people worships me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. It's not true. It's lip service. It satisfies my need. That's why it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter whether it's a church building. It doesn't matter whether it's a house. You can worship God any place. It doesn't matter whether you're a car. It doesn't matter whether you have a suit or you don't have a suit. But people think if I just change those things, that's the way to worship God. You can change that all you want. But if life's not changed, it never really happened. We have to know who God is, what he has done. And that's where salvation comes in. She's ready for the last part of the good news, and we'll conclude with this. She needs to know who Jesus is. There are so many concepts of Jesus today. If you go out in the street, first of all, you'll be amazed at how many children don't even know who Jesus is. All they do is swear with the name. But there's a concept that Jesus was a good man. Jesus was, he's okay, and Islam accepts Jesus as a prophet. Is that who Jesus is? He's more than a prophet, folks. He's the Messiah. He's the one sent of God. And notice this. Her concept in verse 25 as we wrap it up is that I know this. You see how God's leading her along? Jesus Christ has led her to the place where she wanted physical relief. Then she tried to divert it to religion. And now she's under such conviction because she knows her sin and she knows who the true God is. And then she comes to conviction. You know what? There's a Messiah coming. But in her mind, so I do justice to the text, she would have been thinking in terms of Moses. Because Moses was to be a, there would be a prophet like Moses, and she had the Pentateuch. But he says something, and I want you to catch this. Because to my knowledge, and, and I could be wrong, but to my knowledge, this is the only place until you come to his trials that he clearly says who he is. He says to her in verse 26, I who speak to you, and I know what your Bible says in English. It says, am he. It's simply ego a me. I am. What does that mean? He says to her, I'm the one. That's what she should have recognized. Because when Moses was being sent, he said, Who shall I say send me? Just tell him, I am that I am had sent thee. And Jesus identifies himself right here as God. And he says, I'm the Messiah. I'm the one sent by God. I am that person. I am the anointed one. 
I am the savior of the world. And that's the good news. Yes, people's sins have to be exposed. Yes, people do have to understand to some degree who the one true God is, not just a general God. But yes, they also need to understand that there is good news. And the good news is if you come to Christ and believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, God sent him. Why did he send him? Because God will not accept any other sacrifice for sin. God will not accept any other way as the payment for sin. God's righteousness, that holy, true, immaterial God will only accept the one sacrifice of his son, Jesus Christ, as the payment for sin. And if you believe on him, you shall be saved. That's the good news. It's not your way. It's not. That's why you need truth. It's not any Jesus. It's not any way. You can't hide or avoid sin. You can't make God anyone you want to believe. And when you're witnessing to someone, you had better be sure before you get ready to have them pray, so to speak, that they understand not only who sin is, but they understand who God is. And they clearly understand that Jesus Christ is the only Messiah. They clearly understand that it's not just adding religion to their life. They clearly understand that it's changed from the inside out. It's not going back to my old life. How many times have you said or heard people say that they just led someone to Christ and you say, well, where are they? Well, give them time. They're back in the world. You better go back and witness to them again. Why? Probably not safe. A new creation is a changed life. And I want to say this in closing. It can be overwhelming. But listen to me. There is absolutely no sin that is too great for Christ. You might be sitting there and say, wow, she was living with a man and that was sin? Yep. She was involved with several husbands, probably involved in even adultery? Yep, that's sin. And you can go on and name all these sins and so forth. And wow, that's pretty strong. And you don't know what I've done. What if you committed murder? God can forgive that. But he can only forgive it in one place. In the work and person of Jesus Christ. Why? Because of who God is. A holy, righteous, perfectly loving God who's merciful, but only merciful to the ones who will place their faith on his mercy seat. That is on Jesus Christ, who shed his blood. Folks, don't be fooled. In 2009, we're living in a day and age in which many of us are diverting true worship by trying to change the circumstances, the style, the formality, and the hearts of people are not being changed. What needs to be changed is the inward man. What needs to happen, and true worship should happen with every one of us as we leave here, 24-7, wherever we are. Sunday is just a collective, joyous time to come together with the people of God. This is not the only time of worship. It's fact, it's only a fraction of what should be happening. My God help us to worship him every day in spirit and truth. Let's pray. 
Our Father in God, this woman was so confused. And I thank you so much for the example of Christ. He wouldn't let her stay with her misunderstanding of physical things. He wouldn't let her stay with her misconception with religion or who God was. And even the Messiah. But he very practically, patiently waited upon the Spirit of God to do the work. As he took her from that which she knew, water, to that which she could not understand, living water, eternal life in Christ. Help us as we witness to people to make sure that they understand what sin is. That they understand who God is, not who they think God is. But they understand that there is good news found in Jesus Christ. Father, if there be any in our midst here today that have made even professions of faith but have never come to Christ because they've never fully understood who you are, how sinful they are, or what Jesus Christ has done. Open up their hearts right here in the pew. Might they come to the place where they say, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. That they might believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, the only true sacrifice for sin. He who knew no sin became sin for us. Might they see that substitutionary sacrifice and believe on him. Father, for those of us who know you, Father, I've got to confess, so much of our worship is just peripheral. It's not what it ought to be. Our lives don't get changed because we don't let the Spirit of God have the control in our lives the way we should. Oh, Father, help us not to just be ones that worship you with our lips, but our hearts are so far from you. Help our lives to be committed to the Lord Jesus Christ so that in every aspect of our life, every day, we truly worship you in spirit and truth. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.